Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I'm the producer of the show. We're really, really happy to have you with us today. For those of you stateside celebrating Thanksgiving, we hope you're having a great one with you and your loved ones. Hey, today we got a really fantastic guest. We've been stacked with them. Two-time Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, and actress, Jamie Grace. Diagnosed with Tourette's Syndrome, OCD, ADHD, and anxiety at a young age, she is an overcomer. I mean, man, I was so inspired uh, by this interview. So I believe that you will be too. She actively advocates for joy, wellness, and mental health through the lens of music, film, and faith. An entertainer at heart, she regularly creates fresh content, including new music and weekly videos and episodes of her podcast, The Jamie Grace Podcast. So listen, she is super self-aware. She has done a lot of work and you all are really going to benefit. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Uh, Inspiring a seven with equal wings, six and eight. So without any further ado, Here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Jamie Grace, welcome to Typology. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. Well, we're a huge fan of yours, and uh, we're delighted to have you on board. You are an Enneagram. I am a seven. Oh, the sevens. <laughs> Good old seven. The enthusiasts. How did you uh, how did you first learn about the Enneagram? Um, well, my big sister slash best friend, um, she is my claim to fame. She's a really cool poet by the name of Morgan Harper Nichols, and she loves the Enneagram. And so she was telling me about it, and she was like, hey, I want you to know about this thing. I'm not supposed to type you, but I already know what you are, but I'm not going to type you because I'm not supposed to. But um, she's been married for about 10 years. And so her husband is my, I I call him my big brother, but I just have to clarify that he's my brother-in-law because I don't want people to think there's something else going on there. Uh, But so uh, my big brother, they were having a debate what, like what number I was. And he thought I was a three. And so, um, but they didn't tell me what the numbers were. They were like, you just got to get into it. And so my husband, he he wasn't very into it. My husband was like, we're not going to get into this thing. And I was like, look, I don't have time. I just started a new show on Netflix. I don't have time to learn about something. And then uh, we had a road trip. And uh, I read a little bit about the Enneagram from one of my sister's 5,000 books. I thought it was kind of cool because um, I am a huge nerd. So I do love learning. And then I had a road trip and I listened to your interview with Dave Barnes and I cried the entire time. Oh. And I just, he's already, he's been one of my favorite people forever. Um, and uh, I have a mutual friend with, well, a few mutual friends with him. And he had already just like done like a really nice wedding gift for some friends of mine a few years ago. So um, that episode, it, it just transformed my heart mm. in such a beautiful way. And so, um, so yeah, ever since then, I've been really into it. So I'm a seven and my husband's a, a super three, as I like to call him. <laughs> a super th- a three with a three wing. Yeah, he is. Well, he might have, I think he has a two wing, but he is just like, he and I are both just such textbook, our numbers in many ways. <laughs> what makes you a textbook seven? Well, 
I mean, I don't, I mostly see that because everybody else says that I'm a textbook seven because every time people find out that I'm into the Enneagram and they say, oh, what's your number? And I say, I'm a seven. They always go, oh, that makes sense. Um, mostly because of the hardcore like stereotypes that go along with it of just like I'm really loud and like my job is to entertain people and like if I don't make people laugh like I do kind of start to feel like maybe I'm not a good person inside so um there's that but <laughs> but um but yeah I I did struggle with my number for a while and my sister I mean, she's hilarious. She doesn't think she's funny, but she's really funny. Um, she will call me every couple of weeks and be like, I changed my mind. You're not a seven, you're a two. And she'll just like give me this whole analysis about what number she thinks I am that week. Um, because like uh, I do have like mental health stuff. So sometimes that gets kind of confusing because I'm not always the most spontaneous with things and sometimes I don't seem like a dreamer because of some of my mental health stuff but mm. um but yeah I'm just very much um I'm very much a seven and just like I really do try to find the positive in things and um I really just want everybody to feel happy and joyful and smile and dance about mm. things <laughs> I'm feeling I'm feeling the joy right now <laughs> yay it's the tie-dye shirt I wore it on purpose <laughs> I was going to go with gray and I was like, no, 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 no. I'm going on an Enneagram podcast. Play the role, play the role. Oh, I love it. Well, I'm glad you did. So, you know, you, you've mentioned uh, mental illness now twice or two or three times in our uh, conversation here. You have a new book, Finding Quiet, and in it, you actually talk about your mental health diagnoses, your mental illness journey. Yeah. Um, can you explain those to us? And then let's dig into those maybe in light of, of being an Enneagram 7. Yeah, most definitely. So um, when I was 11 years old, I was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome, um, as well as OCD, ADHD, and anxiety. Um, and so uh, the gist of it, Tourette syndrome is a neurobiological condition that causes me to make movements and sounds that I can't control. And so from the ages of 9 to 15, um, there was a lot of severity. Um, my tics were so bad that walking from point A to point B was a challenge without falling mm. down. Um, I would have pillows um, in the car because my tics were just so out of control and I would hit the window with my head or my arms. Um, I remember mm. like being in like grocery stores, like parents or like other you know, parents and like adults in the store, like giving my mom like weird looks and stuff, thinking that I was just having behavioral issues because I was always knocking stuff over. And then like now I kind of look back and laugh because I also have OCD. So then I would like put it back, but then I would want it to be like perfectly organized and then I would knock it over again. So I would just spend like five minutes just in a corner of the store. My mom's like, we got to go. And I'm like, but the black eyed peas are not by, they're not supposed to be by the corn, mom. Like I got to fix this. So it's just like, it just was a lot of complexity, um, a lot of anxiousness and overanalyzation and physical, you know, uh, uh, lack of control of my body and stuff like that. So it was just really, um, really challenging. But that, that's the gist of my diagnosis. And then uh, when I became um, an adult, I went through some traumatic things. And so um, I started showing signs of depression, uh, depression in my 20s. And I'm 28 mm. now. Right. So I just was having a feeling in my body that it was hard for me to understand. And I, I tend to be pretty in touch with what I'm feeling as I talk to people, you know. And as you were telling the story about the grocery store, 
part of me, one half of me was feeling empathy and sadness, but the way that you were telling the story, half of me felt like laughing with you about <laughs> the absurdity of what was happening, right? This need to, the OCD and the Tourette's going on at the same time. And what I kept thinking was, is why am I also feeling joy alongside of this empathy and, um, you know, feeling the pain of somebody going through that experience? Yeah. What Do people ever, ever say that to you? Like, why am I <laughs> feeling joy and empathy with you at the same time? Uh, I've never heard it put that way, but I, I love that. That is like the coolest thing ever. Um, for me, they have to coexist or I can't function. Um, I, I've had deep, deep depressive moments. Um, I've dealt with self-harm before. Um, and I've also had moments where I just felt on top of the world. You know, I think about like my wedding, for example, people, you know, would think that I would be crying or something. I laughed more at that wedding than I have like watching Maya Rudolph in her prime. Like I laugh I just laughed my whole wedding day because I was like, there's no stinking way I tricked this kind of handsome into marrying me. Like, this is hilarious. <laughs> like, I punked him, you know? So uh, I've, I've felt like both ends of, of that spectrum for sure. And I think that that is where, like, I didn't notice it until the last couple of years, but, um, well, yeah, because I don't really... I didn't really know about the Enneagram until the last couple of years, but noticing how much of that is me, <laughs> me oftentimes avoiding pain and mm. avoiding wanting to see other people in pain. And like, if I'm watching a movie and someone's going to get embarrassed, I'll mute it because I don't want to watch them get embarrassed. Mm. Um, and if I'm telling my sad story and I notice that it can make people sad, I'm like, crap, tell a fun part because how dare I inflict pain? You know, how dare I do that? When in reality, like the conscious part of my mind knows that that's realistic, that pain needs to be felt and needs to be dealt with and processed and, you know, sifted through. Like the, the conscious part of my mind can tell you that. The pastor's kid in my mind can preach a sermon on Job. But the me part of my mind, <laughs> the seven part of my mind says, oh, no, 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 not only pain, allow the pain and the joy to coexist because then we can cope. <laughs> yeah, and that that's an incredible insight. And it literally was something I felt in my body. I was sort of wow. going, I felt like this ping pong thing was going on between two sides of my chest, mm. you know, between wanting to laugh, not happy laugh, but this joy experience alongside this experience mm. of empathy and... Yeah. Uh, feeling pain with you for that experience and and there was something uh very human about it you know and very like well this is as life is you know uh yeah life, right. li life is filled with tremendous uh suffering and tremendous joy and they do coexist and i'm feeling that in this actual moment and i was like huh that's actually that's actually new that's in really a way. cool yeah. I've never heard, like, I've never heard anybody say that to me, but that, like, like, I've heard it in, like, sim similar ways. Like, it happens a lot at my shows, people, because a lot of my songs are really upbeat, happy songs, you know, and I, I take joy in that. Um, but a lot of times, like, when I'm explaining what the song's about, like, 
I'll like kind of catch like the vibe in the room that I'll like, like everybody's like really feeling the feelings. And then I'll be like, okay, it's time to sing it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) (laughs) like, sorry, you cried. (laughs) Let's talk about it. (laughs) Chip Dodd said the best we can hope for in this life is gladness mixed with sadness. Mm, Wait, who said that? Sorry. Dr. Chip Dodd. He said the best we can hope for in this life is sadness mixed with gladness. There's always a mixture of the two. Right, right. Mm Mm-hmm. So you got this book, Finding Quiet, right? Tell us, tell us what it's about. And then I want to keep jumping back at this seven thing, because I think it's an important part of this conversation and of your journey. Yeah, for sure. This is like, I didn't pay for therapy this week, because I was like, I'll be talking to Ian. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> just get a little, get, save me some cash. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. The meter's running. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I thought they sent you the book for free. Uh, that was your pay. No, I uh, <laughs> I so I you know I'm always trying to like I'm always trying to like fix stuff I'm always trying to figure everything out so I was like one day <laughs> one day like a couple days after a panic attack I was like oh, I'm gonna fix my anxiety real quick because I was just like I was just <laughs> kind of over it so I figured if I just fix it real quick I won't have to deal with it anymore I'm so realistic and so I decided to start uh, listening to some I mean, I'm, I'm always actively working on managing my anxiety and improving. And when I say my anxiety, I mean my anxiety diagnosis and also just my anxiousness as a human. I do believe there's a difference. There's oftentimes a fine line in between for me. But I'm always trying to learn and grow and do the best that I can to not allow myself to become, uh, to hold either of those things as a crutch. But on this particular day, I decided that I was just going to do a full-on overhaul and just be the best. So I started journaling um, what that looked like for me. And the first thing that I wrote down, it was something to the extent of, I live with a daily amount of anxiousness and I live with a daily uh, significant amount of faith or something along those lines. And so um, I started writing it and this journal entry just poured out of me and I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I didn't intend to share it with anyone, but um, I was talking with my sister a few weeks after, and we actually, we referenced the episode that you did with Dave Barnes frequently, um, because I oftentimes feel that way, like everybody just expects joy out of me and just Mm -hmm. expects me to make them happy. And I enjoy that, but like, what about when I'm sad? Like, why can't I talk about it? Mm -hmm. Um, And so my sister is known for, like her words really make people feel things. And I was just telling her, I was like, I want to be more like you. Like I want people to feel more when they hear from me. I don't want people to think that I'm always happy. I want them to feel. And so we were just talking about that. And then I said, can I share a journal entry with you? So I shared with her this journal entry that talks about me living with both anxiety and faith at the same time and me just feeling like I'm always arguing with myself. And Mm -hmm. she looked at me and she was like, this is not a journal. This is a book. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said to her, I was like, you're wrong. Like, leave me alone. I don't want to be your friend anymore. Like, (laughs) I don't like, I don't have time to write a book. Like I have stuff to do. Um, and cause I've written, I've written two books before. They were both about being single. I'm married now, but they were both about being single. Cause people were like super obsessed with my singlehood for whatever reason, I guess, cause I'm a Christian female. Um, and so <laughs> I had written these, like, <laughs> I had written these like two, like super easy read dating books that were just 
just like, look, leave me alone. Um, and, but I was not trying to write like a book where I had to like sign papers and like legally commit to it. And my sister was like, no, like you need to write a book. So um, my family agreed. My family's very close. So my family, when they agree on something, it's like, look, we've all come together and spoken to Jesus. And so we're going to just graciously remind you of this on a weekly basis. And I'm glad that they did because this book, you know, it may be labeled as a self-help book, if you will, but honestly, this book is my journey and it's my story and it's something that I'm still working on and something that I will likely be working on for a while of really learning to quiet the noise, quiet the anxiousness and quiet all of the busyness of life around me and truly find quiet. Um, and so, yeah, that's what it's about. Hmm. You know, um, <clears throat> this, uh, the topic, I've been looking forward to this conversation because, uh, for example, I have a, uh, any number of friends and, a, and one of my children who is a seven. And of course, you all look so confident and optimistic and sunny and, uh, you know, always finding the silver linings, right, uh, in this attempt to avoid psychological and emotional or even sometimes circumstantial discomfort or distress. And... But what people don't understand about sevens is if you just scratch the paint just a little bit, you will always find, number one, a lot of anxiety, mm-hmm. a lot of anxiety, and um, a lot of what I would call um, um, unattended sorrow, mm-hmm. unattended grief, um, that they've spent so long you know, cultivating or living into the expectations that others have of them to always be the funny girl, the funny guy, the person yeah. who always always brings the juice, always makes the party fun. And, and you know, I remember with this child of mine as a seven, one day in a tearful conversation, uh, they're saying to me, you know, nobody really actually knows who I am inside. They, they, they really only know this kind of happy persona. And they don't know about my intellectual depth. They don't know about the yeah. depth of my heart. And um, I don't know if that's been your experience or if some of the pain you experienced early on helped you around it. Is that, does that sound like your experience at all? Oh, that is the story of my life. (laughs) Mm. Um, I I constantly feel that anxiousness that, you know, that I try to make space for and try to create space for. But sometimes I notice that in friendships and relationships and even sometimes in my career, once I start to express that side, it's oftentimes received well. And I I should definitely be, I am grateful for that. And I should definitely acknowledge that. Um, But there are times where, even when I start to express sorrow or pain, I'm like, wait, but there's more. Like, I just don't know if you're ready for that. Like, I don't know if that'll, I feel like it almost throws off the rhythm of things because Mm. like people become reliant on what I'm capable of and what I give that when I'm not giving that. (laughs) Right. are, are, are off. And I, I remember, I remember when, you know, so I've, I've very openly talked about wanting to be a mom for the longest time. I mean, I, my parents are two of my best friends. Like I've always wanted to be a mom, but um, 
but because I was, I, so my husband was the first person that I ever dated and uh, we got married two and a half years ago uh, after uh, dating for five months. And so before that I was super single and what does super, hold on a second, wait a minute. What does super (laughs) single mean? I know it is, you know, so super single is just, (laughs) I mean, I would maybe go on like two dates and I'd be like, this ain't it. Um, I don't have time for this. I have a job. I can buy my own Olive Garden. Thank you so much. I just don't. I don't have time for this. (laughs) I'm going to just remove myself from the narrative and keep swiping. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Keep swiping? Did you just say keep swiping? I did because people had this expectation that like, oh, she's a preacher's daughter. She must just be hiding in the attic waiting for the man to show up. Oh my like, no. God. Like I was on dating apps. Like I was going on dates, but I just was like, I was so uninterested in, in what was being presented. It doesn't mean that they weren't great humans. It just was not the greatness that the Lord had designated for me. And I'm okay with that. Um, as I was not the greatness that the Lord had designated for other people. And that's totally okay. So I was just super single because I was just like, I didn't kiss anybody. I didn't hold hands. I didn't, you know, do no cuddling on the couch or nothing. I was like, you ain't going to mess up my testimony. I'm saving some things. <laughs> and I'm going to keep it that way. I have a plan. And by God's grace <laughs> and me fighting temptation, we're going to keep the story that the Lord has ordained for me. <laughs> And now, if I hadn't, there's grace that covers all. I want to clarify. Uh, <laughs> Hold on a second. I got, I got to find something to wipe my face with. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I'm just so happy right now. You guys, I just made Ian laugh so hard. He just said, oh, I don't think I've laughed that. I know for a fact I have never laughed that hard on this show. <laughs> I'm still stuck on the I can get my own olive garden. Yeah. It's not that expensive. And they have deals monthly. <laughs> They'll be like, two for 20, look at all this pasta. <laughs> I need no man to buy you that. If there's some girl listening and she's relying on some man, I will Venmo her 20 bucks to get her some Olive Garden. Uh-uh. Oh, where's the discount code? Get that up on for the <laughs> right. Tell them to take a nap. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, don't, I don't even remember what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, so I was super single. So every time I talked about wanting to have a child, I always talked about adoption. Um, which is something that I know that God has called something God has called me to and my husband to, and we pray, you know, for when the Lord tells us it's time. So with that being said, my entire life, motherhood to me meant foster care and adoption. Um, when I got married and I felt well, and I fell in love and then I got married, I realized, Oh, maybe we could have our own child biologically. Um, so I had never, and I, I promise you this, I talked about wanting to have a child all the time, but until I was actually pregnant, I've never thought about being pregnant. Like it has never crossed my mind. So the hormonal changes and the adjustment in my anxiety and the adjustment, adjustment in depression that happens for a lot of women when your body goes through that significant of a change was so unexpected for me that it almost tore me apart. Hmm. Um, And I would go through it again if it meant that I could have my sweet Isabella because she is the joy of my life. But when I tell you I was not prepared 
for what would happen mentally and emotionally when I got pregnant and what would happen after having a child and understanding that postpartum depression wasn't sadness, but it was so much deeper and so much darker. Partnered with all of these people that listen to my music and have prayed for me to have a husband and have a child that watch my YouTube videos of me updating them with every little detail about my life. Now they're saying, well, how's the pregnancy? We want to see the baby bump. Are you going to have another one? What are you going to name the baby? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? All these questions wanting to share in the joy that I was not connected to. Mm. And that's not the first time in my life that something like that has happened, but that's probably the most significant. Um, One of the most significant ones for sure. And one of the most recent ones um, is because I was severely depressed and um, you know, I mean, just sitting on, sitting on the floor, just, numb for hours at a time during my pregnancy, just mentally lost and confused and anxious about what childbirth was going to be like and anxious about if I would be a good mom and anxious about if I could still be a good wife after becoming a mom. So much fear and insecurity um, while simultaneously being consistently asked well, what about the joy? What about the joy? Let's see. Let's see. How's it going? How's it going? And just not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say. And so I just felt lost and I just felt like no one knows the real me. And if I try to, if I try to even give them a hint or an ounce, because I'm a Christian, I knew that the majority of the response would be, well, you got to pray. It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Motherhood's great. You know, I just, I, I was worried about what the response would be. So I just, I mean, I found the wrong kind of quiet, to be honest. I just kind of isolated for a while and mm. also had great support from my family, which is great. But um, but yeah, that's not the first time that I felt that way, that I've just felt like, well, I guess I should probably just isolate because it's much easier than trying to let people know that I'm not what they need right now. Mm-hmm. Say that last line again. Yeah, and I, just, I figured it was it wasn't the first time that I just, chose to isolate because I figured it was probably much easier than letting people know that I wasn't what they needed right now. Yeah. And I'd say what they wanted right now. <clears throat> yeah. You know, I, th- I think, you know, um, when you're in the public sphere, um, I have this problem. Uh, you have this problem. People get used to you uh, uh, filling a niche in their life. And yeah. they, they develop a very one-dimensional picture of who you are. Um, and they kind of uh, become a little addicted to that persona. And they can't imagine that there's more to it than that. Right, right, right. right. So to out, I mean, just to, to talk about my own experience, you know, I, when I was 27 years old, <clears throat> I fell into the worst depression. Uh, and it lasted four years. Um, now, in, you know, this is in the late 1980s, so they, they didn't have medications back then like they do now. Yeah. Um, they hadn't even, I don't even think Prozac had come out by that mm. point. So they were, you know, 
this runs in my family. We, we like to say that depression gallops in my family. It doesn't even run in the family, you know. <laughs> my, da- my dad suffered from it. His two sisters did. And it, it came out of nowhere. I mean, I was doing fine, and then I wasn't. I mean, it sort of fell like uh, I don't explain it. Uh, depression is very hard to explain to people that yeah. don't have a real experience of it. it it's sort of, uh, as William Stryan says about it, the author, he says it's darkness visible. It's like this, it's like this pall that sort of falls over you. And, yeah. and, and mine was mixed with anxiety as well. So I know what a panic attack is. I've had plenty during those years. Uh, and it took four years um, of working with doctors before we could figure out, you know, what it, what was going on and how to address it, you know. Um, and th- there was times during that season when they thought it might be temporal lobe epilepsy. They weren't sure what, what entirely was happening, you know. Um, I was able to function. I was never hospitalized. I never, you know, uh, thought about hurting myself, thank goodness. But it was every day was a struggle. I mean, it was a struggle, right? Now, here's what's interesting. I'm a four on the Enneagram, right? Now, fours are typically melancholy, kind of, at times, depressives. But they're not always depressed, right? And um, uh, sevens, uh, you know, or you could say sixes uh, are known for their issues around anxiety, yeah. But that doesn't mean that they all have generalized anxiety disorders. Right. Right? And so and I could go through, all, you know, ones are known for their love for order, let's say, a particular kind of one, but that doesn't make them all OCD. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I'm always trying to figure out, you know, what's the, what's the line between personality and pathology? Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, what's the oh, yeah. what's what's the line between illness and idiosyncrasies? You know, yeah. of your of your personality type. And when do you start to say, you know what? I don't think you're being a four. I think you're depressed. Yeah. Or I don't think you're being a seven. I think you know you have these other medical issues going on that need addressing. And I don't know. Have you ever thought about that at all? Oh, ever since like. 1998 like it's just been it's like always on my mind i think it's it's one of the reasons why the enneagram has been so helpful for me because Mm. i've had i've had some things in my life where i've always thought that like i'm like oh this is a part of my mental health journey and then i'll like I was about to say, I'll sit in a room of sevens. I've never been in a room of sevens. And I don't know if that sounds like really fun or really hard, but um, this is also really random, but I don't usually like the sevens in movies. And I feel like maybe I need to work through that. So I'm not really sure if we'll have time to dig through my um, problems there. But um, yeah, so um, 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 yeah, so like sometimes I'll see like a bunch of sevens talking about something and I'm like, oh no, that's because I'm an Enneagram seven. Like that's not my anxiety, you know? Um, and uh, that's why a lot of times, like my sister, um, <laughs> my sister and I both, we go back and forth. We're like, wait, maybe I'm a one. Cause we used to think I was a one all the time. Cause I'm obsessed with organization. I have like three color coded like calendars in the room and stuff like that. And so, um, I've always thought about that. I remember when I was a kid, my mom, um, my mom does not have um, well, she now actually went back to school. She has a degree in sociology, but um, she could be like 
a licensed therapist, but like she wouldn't know that she was a licensed therapist. Like she gave me so much behavioral therapy when I was a child without knowing. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, I remember, you know, because I have OCD, I remember there was a time where um, I just had to like clean the counters a certain way. And if somebody did it, I would just like have to go back and do it. And like, um, if we were like on a family vacation, I had to like stay in a certain bed, but like not just like any certain bed, like it wasn't consistent. It was like based on which way the room was facing toward the highway. It was like all these like really specific details that inconvenienced my family. It didn't inconvenience them enough to be like, hey, Jamie, stop. But it did delay every 10 to 15 tasks as a family, like cleaning Mm. up the kitchen as a family. Oh, this is going to be delayed because of Jamie's stuff. Getting in the car as a family. Oh, if you get in her side of the car, that's going to be a whole thing because of Jamie's OCD. And I remember my mom, when I was a kid, maybe when I was 11 or 12 or something like that, she just kind of sat down with me and she was like, look, I want you to know that I'm always going to be here for you. And I'm always going to support you. And, you know, anything you ever need, like your dad and I will always be here. Um, but she was like, the world's not going to cater to what you need. And mm. that's going to be hard, but I need you to understand if you want to go out into the world. She's like, no, if, if you feel like it would be more comfortable and easier and safer for you to be home with, you know, mom and dad, that's one thing. But if you choose to go out into the world, you need to understand that the world is not going to care that you have OCD. Interviewers aren't going to ask about your anxiety. You know, that, and of course that we live in a different world now, but in the 90s, like this is a very valid conversation to have with your kid. Mm. Um, And I'm grateful for that because she didn't try to tell me to be anybody that I wasn't. She didn't try to hide anything. Uh, She didn't want me to hide anything. She just wanted me to understand that there is going to be a difference with how the world is going to perceive me and how I'm perceived at home. And that conversation really caused me to start thinking, okay, how much of this can I control? Again, not in a way to diminish my mental health diagnosis, not in a way to tell my neurologist that he was wrong, but in a way to say, if I have OCD, is all of this absolutely uncontrollable or can some of these things be managed? And as I got older, it was, okay, are these things being managed because I'm managing my OCD or is this a part of my behavior and a part of the fact that I'm the youngest sibling and a part of the fact that I'm a little bit of a whiny pastor's kid and I just want things to go my way. Um, and that is, that's a, that's still a daily conversation. You know, I, I'm almost 30 and uh, my family has full permission to still call me out on my stuff. Uh, And so my mom will still pull me over to the side sometimes and be like, that's not your anxiety. You're being stubborn. And I'm Mm. like, well, okay, mom, you know, like like, be respectful, (laughs) but like still remind her I'm an adult and I'm just so wise because I'm almost 30. Um, but yeah, like that's definitely still a learning curve for me and like still trying to figure that out. And my sister's an Enneagram five. And so we're all, that's a huge thing for her too. Cause we're always talking about how like, like she's just like naturally a little bit more like reserved and like more normal than I am. Mm-hmm. And so like, we're just like always talking about just like stuff like that. I'm like, I'll text her. Like, Are you being a five right now? Or am I just being annoying? <laughs> you know, like, like what, like, what is it? Like, do you need your alone time? Or, you know, is this like a mental health thing? Or is this an Enneagram thing? It's a daily conversation though. All that to answer your question. It's a daily conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a good answer. I, 
I mean, because, you know, um, human beings are so complicated. And, and sometimes people will say, oh, you know, I, I'm so anxious. I must be a six. And I said, yeah. you know, I've had clients like that. And I said, gee, I, actually, I think you're a two with a generalized anxiety disorder. Y mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that yeah. simple as saying, oh, if you're anxious, you must be a five, six or seven. It's like, yeah, no, people are more complicated than that, you know? Uh, yeah. And, you know, where the where the line is where the intersection is between mental health issues and personality type really fascinates me, you know, yeah. like, and concerns me with people who, you know, sometimes uh, think they know more about the Enneagram than they actually do. And they, they start, you know, saying, oh, that's you just being a one when actually it's like, no, you need to get to a neurologist. You yeah. know, I mean, it's like, so I'm always curious about, and because, and because of my experience as a four, being someone who had a biological depression. I mean, not, right. I mean, it was like, came out of the blue, just doing my life. And suddenly one day I wasn't, you know, yeah. um, years ago. So to me, it's like, I'm very cautious a lot of times. I try to really, it's, it, it feels at times like I'm trying to like uh, get the, pest, the pesto off the pasta because it's so complicated. Yeah. You know, that that's what you have to do, you know, when you're trying to understand yourself. You know, you talk in the book about the world being noisy. And I want I want you to explain to me what you mean about the noise in your life. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's just constant, constant noise. And I, I can't help but notice like every tiny little sound, you know, I was, I was talking to someone earlier sitting at this desk and the whole time I was talking to them, I was like moving a little and my desk was creaking and all I could think about how if my desk is creaking, it must be because we just moved and maybe we forgot to put one of the screws and maybe my desk was going to fall down. And as I was thinking about that and talking to them simultaneously, my phone went off and I was like, oh man, I was supposed to turn my phone off and now it's going off during this interview and it's just like the constant, like things just don't stop, you know, for most of us, when we wake up in the morning, we check our phones. And even if we were to say, oh, I'm checking my phone to do my yoga app, or I'm checking my phone to see what's in Genesis today, you know, we're still opening a device that cost, uh, you know, what would be equivalent to most people's paycheck um, to just, you know, scroll through what's happening in the literal scheme of the world um and then we have the sound of our television and even when we had a child everybody was like you need to get a white noise machine to put her to sleep and so i'm like we're literally training our babies to go to sleep to noise but it's a white noise mm. so it's quiet noise but it's noise you know and it's not to say that these sounds are wrong that these sounds are you know not to be heard but there's something so significant about the quiet and we overlook the quiet because we find so much success in the noise. Um, we find, we have found our success in the noise. You know, for me, coming from the music business, if you will, you know, I, 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 I wasn't deemed as, or in the music business, you're not deemed as successful if you have taken complete care of your mental and emotional health and you and your spouse and children are having a picnic on a Saturday, you know, a Saturday having a picnic for an artist is failure. 
uh, mm. Saturday is supposed to be spent with 30,000 people in a huge venue with everybody singing your name out loud. And it's not supposed to end after that show because if that show sold out, then you should have been doing a next show on Sunday. But then you're going to have to cancel that show on Sunday if it didn't sell out because how dare we play a show that didn't sell out because we only deem success as a bunch of noise. And so 10,000 butts in a 30,000 30, seater arena is not success. That's failure because uh, only a third full it's not noisy enough it's not loud enough it's not big enough it's not bold enough um and i think as as christians as humans as people our obsession with noise again not all the noise is bad but our obsession with noise has has really taken us away from quiet and we we scream division and we scream pain and we we scream against the things we don't enjoy but how much quiet time are we really having and how much do we really want peace if we're not actually pursuing it? Hey everybody, one of the lessons I've learned over the years is that not everybody benefits from a traditional 50 minute counseling session. And this is why some people can go to couples therapy or personal counseling for a long time and never really get anywhere. This is why I'm such a believer of intensive counseling and my friends at Restoring the Soul in Colorado, created by my longtime friend Michael Cusick to help couples or individuals experience deep change and have day blocks over one or two weeks. Now listen, if you can't wait months or years to get to the bottom of an issue or to experience breakthrough, you need to get in touch with my friend Michael and his extraordinary team of counselors at Restoring the Soul. If you're looking to get out of the rut you're in, but can't wait months or years, call Restoring the Soul today for a free consultation with Michael's staff. Call 303-932-9777 and learn how their intensive counseling process can help you. As a special bonus, just for Typology listeners, make sure to visit www.restoringthesoul.com slash typology to download their PDF called Five Ways Unaddressed Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationships. You know, it's interesting too. Sevens have noisy minds. Um, Sixes have noisy minds. I mean, we, let's face it, you know, you know, human beings secrete thoughts the way that glands secrete hormones, you know, I mean, so thoughts are not bad. But, but yeah. sevens have monkey mind, racing mind, um, which I would imagine for you with an anxiety disorder only exacerbates the problem, right? Because once the, the loop of anxiety starts to run, right? <laughs> you, okay, I have an anxious moment, I then begin to anticipate another anxious moment, which then actually produces that anxious moment, right? Which then sets (laughs) me up to anticipate the next anxious moment until you get yourself into a full-blown panic kind of a uh, uh, episode. Um, But I think sevens um, have minds that are just naturally noisy. So what do you do? Because we have external noise in the world, for sure, right? We have so much, in fact, that I am literally, um, we live in the middle of a town. I love my home. I I love where we are. Um, But, you know, one of the things we've done is decide to move because it's it's gotten for us to be, I need more quiet. Mm -hmm. I'm a a quiet person. I like quiet. Yeah. Um, But, you know, so we always have external noise. But how do you cope with a noisy mind? 
What practices right, right. do you use? What kinds of things do you do to quiet the mind uh, yeah. and make it make it a sanctuary versus a subway station? You know. <laughs> I thought at first they thought you meant like the restaurant subway, and I was like, <laughs> Ian, we make some good sandwiches. Um, I I do like their tuna sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I haven't gotten into the tuna, but I'm gonna let it slide. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm I just give you a time. I love food so much. Um, yeah, I mean. One thing that I that I do, ironically, to fill the quietness of, <laughs> to fill the anxiousness rather of my mind, is I oftentimes will just uh, build other sounds on top of it, um, and that is not the healthiest practice. So I'll get to my healthier practice in a second. But you know, a lot of times I will. Well, actually, it can be a healthy practice if you're intentional. So if I'm feeling really anxious, I'll listen to music that can calm me down and kind of distract mm -hmm. me from those thoughts. Um, I really like interviews a lot, so I listen to a lot of interviews. Um, I think they're fascinating in their structure. Um, when I was a kid, I used to listen to interviews and I would mute the interviewer and I would, or the interviewee and I would pretend to be the guest and do the answers because I just, I love sound. I love good sound. I can, I like uh, certain equalizers. I like certain microphones, certain interfaces. And so I'm a really big nerd when it comes to sound. So that's, that's really helpful for me. But something that I wanted to do a to learn to do, and I've only started this in recent years, I wanted to learn how to genuinely sit in the quiet. Um, my whole life I've dealt with insomnia. And recently I've learned that maybe it's not always insomnia, maybe it's anxiety, or maybe it's the inability to deal with um, my thoughts. And so when I would lay down to go to sleep and I would close my eyes and it was absolutely quiet, all I could do is think about like all the stuff that I did wrong that day, all the dumb stuff, all the stuff I need to do, all the emails I forgot to handle, like all the weird all the whatever. Um, and so I started like laying down when I'm going to sleep at night and letting those anxious thoughts happen. Because yes. I realized the more that I tried to pretend like they didn't exist by just piling songs on top of them and piling podcasts on top of them, I was just burying them deeper and deeper and deeper inside. And eventually they were going to have to get out. Um, again, I'm not saying it's wrong to listen to music and things when you're stressed, but I realized that I needed to let them out. So what I do now, an actual practice that I do at home and in, and in public, because I don't care, but if I can, uh, I will let those thoughts out. I will just allow myself to think, you're not good enough. You're not a good mom. And I don't try to bring those thoughts up. I want to make sure that's very clear. But especially for someone with an anxiety diagnosis, those thoughts aren't always my choice. And so um, I will let those thoughts happen. But I don't let it end there because what I choose to say to anxiety is that you might be the opener to this show, but truth is going to be the headliner and truth is going to have the final word. And mm. so as odd as it might sound and as uncomfortable as it might be and a little embarrassing, I choose to speak out loud truth over those thoughts in my mind because a voice out into the quiet will always be louder than anything that can happen in your mind. So after the those thoughts have ruminated and spiraled down and done their share of what they need to do, then I choose to speak out loud, Jamie Grace, you are a daughter of the Most High King. Jamie Grace, you are loved. You are a good wife. You are a good mom. You are a good singer. You make good music. And 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 that's not to say like, oh, guys, buy my songs. But it's 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 a it's a way that I choose to speak back into who I am um, regarding what God says about me. 
when the quiet, the anxiousness rather, in the quiet, would rather see me torn down and defeated, I choose to say no. Truth will always speak much louder um, than anxiety ever can. Mm. You know, thank you so much. I, I think that's really um, helpful wisdom for people. I, I have a, um, a couple of different systems I have when my, I mean, I have a pretty racy mind, um, sort of an artsy, racy mind that kind of can get a little tiggerish from time to time. And yeah. I, and, and I, but I also know that just all of us have what I call afflictive emotions, right? We, we all at times feel sadness or anxiety or yeah. disappointment or um, fear or wh- whatever the case. And when, a, when a, an emotion comes up for me, I'm, I'm very sort of a, attuned to it, particularly in my body. So I know, like my body, as uh, Bessa van der Kolk, the author, says, you know, the, the body keeps the score, right? Yeah. And, and my body does keep the score. Like I know when something's coming up and I'm like... It, it it makes me stop and turn toward it, not run from it, but turn toward it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you know this um, this wonderful acronym RAIN, R A I N? It's a wonderful practice for any time you have a, an emotion come up that is tr- troubling, right? In fact, let's not even name it troubling because that actually gives it power. When when a powerful emotion comes up, right? And the R stands for recognize. And so in the moment, you just go anxious. You just recognize it. You know, it's like, you know, run from it. You know, try to push it away because, you know, the more you resist, the more it persists. Right. Right. It, you know, you just go, I just name it. I go sadness. I feel sadness right now. I just recognize it. And I don't judge it, which is where a lot of people get in trouble. They go like, Oh, it's bad. I, you know, I'm a Christian, or I'm a this, or I'm a that, and and I shouldn't feel sadness. It's like, well, good luck on that plan. Just <laughs> recognize it. Don't judge it. Don't do anything else. Then the A stands for allow. Hmm. Just allow it. Like just make space for it, right? Yeah. Because because no feeling is forever. Mm-hmm. No no feeling is final, right? As the poet Rilke said, and then. The I is inquire. And uh, that inquire means like to even ask yourself in the moment, okay, is what I'm telling myself right now true? Mm, yeah. And then, you know, uh, am I a lousy mother? Am I a lousy singer? Yeah. Am I, am I a bad wife? Uh, am I overwhelmed? Am I never, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, yeah. sort of, and then the second question is, can I know for sure that it's true? Because a lot of times people go, well, it feels like it's true. And I go, no, no, right, no, no, exactly. no, 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 no. I didn't ask you. Mess. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> you right? So that, so you can just start to ask yourself questions like, is it true? And then ask yourself the question, what would my life be like if I decided to stop believing that was true? Yeah. Mm, like, how would my life so be good. different? You know? And then finally, the N in that equation is nurture. Mm. And that means just to kind of um, <clears throat> talk to yourself in a nurturing manner. Like, yeah. like you know, people get crazy thoughts. And, right. all the, and, and you don't have to believe all your thoughts. Just because you believe them doesn't make them true. Just because you have the thought doesn't make it true. 
it's just blowing through your head like a weather pattern. That's all. Right, it's, right. You know, some are true, some are just coming out of the some kind of crazy, you know, synapse in your brain somewhere. You know, right. And then just learn how to be your friend, your own friend, in the face of anxiety or depression or whatever. And sometimes I have to do that R A I N thing a couple of times a day. Right. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? And and get through it. So this I has love been that, a though. It's, I think it's, yeah, you know, we all need some little practical little things to work with, you know, that, that can help us. So how do people find the book Find Quiet? Yeah. So you can get it on Amazon if you're like me and you wanted to tell you like exactly like when you're when it's going to get to your house and everything. Um, but you can also, you can go to my website, jamiegrace.com, and you can get a signed copy if you like. I'm not telling anybody if it's signed by me or my one-year-old one of the two of us will definitely sign it for you um but, but yeah that's the only place you can get a signed copy <laughs> okay and people can go to jamiegrace.com and find out about all the stuff that you're doing yes most definitely it's got i'm on itunes and apple music and all that stuff and jamiegrace.com is the best place to find me well jamie you are an extraordinary wonderful effusive illuminating seven and you've brought <laughs> you have brought a lot of joy and uh, a lot of light into uh, my little podcast studio today and I hope you'll come back on and and tell us more because I, I sense that your your journey is now that you're almost 30 yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. is evolving and uh, <laughs> it will be changing over time, and it will bring, and, and that will bring forth more and more incredible wisdom you'll have to share with the world. That really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. This was really yeah. cool. Yeah. And when you talk to Dave Barnes, you tell him I said, "Hey." <laughs> I will do. I feel I had. I just got so much street cred in my family for being on your show. So thank you so much. <laughs> Typology listeners, I want you to go get Jamie Grace's book, Finding Quiet. I want you to go to her website, jamiegrace.com. Remarkable woman, remarkable story. So much joy living alongside the uh, just the hardship of life and learning to live in the balance of the two. Until next time, please remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Until next time.